Back in the 1990s, while Flo Reed was serving as a Peace Corps volunteer in Panama, she witnessed firsthand the deforestation of huge swaths of tropical forests as desperate farmers sought new land to farm. Recognizing that these farmers were trapped in a vicious cycle of slash-and-burn agriculture in order to provide for their families, Flo began researching sustainable and practical alternatives. In 1997, Flo launched Sustainable Harvest International, a grassroots movement to bring significant and lasting change to farming throughout Central America. In the last 24 years, Sustainable Harvest International has expanded their reach to four Central American countries, worked with over 3,000 families, and planted 4 million trees as they work to stop and reverse deforestation due to agricultural demands. Today, I had the privilege of sitting down with Flo Reed and talking with her about her experience as the founder of SHI and also more about their mission and about the results that they're seeing throughout these Central American countries. Listen in on this insightful conversation to discover more about how Sustainable Harvest International is restoring the biodynamics in these countries one farm at a time. Welcome to Holistic Wellness a podcast exploring the science and metaphysics of health and wellness. I'm your host, Brandi Searcy, founder and formulator at Rain Organica, where you'll find holistic skincare in one simple routine. Today, I would like to welcome Florence Reed to the show. She is the founder of Sustainable Harvest International. Flo, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be here and uh, I love your company and what you do, including <laughs> supporting uh, our work. Yes, absolutely. Could you provide just a little bit of background on um, Sustainable Harvest International, why you decided to found this organization, and then what it's looked like kind of through the years. Sure. Um, I started Sustainable Harvest really based on my experience as a Peace Corps volunteer in Panama. Uh, back in the early 90s, I lived in a small rural community there, and I got to see firsthand a lot of the things I had studied in college about tropical deforestation, uh, how the farmers were having to burn more of the forest each year to grow their crops. But what I really came to understand living in this community and working with the farmers was that they didn't want to be uh, using this short rotation slash and burn farming anymore. That what had probably once been a sustainable practice with a smaller indigenous population more widely dispersed had uh, become unsustainable and they were seeing the productivity going down and the land getting degraded. And they were looking for a way to grow more on the same land year after year without having to constantly cut down more of the forest. Uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer, I also 
um, uh, learned, not surprisingly, that a gringa, um, a North American, uh, was not the best person to provide the technical assistance, that it could be better provided by a local person who knew the culture, spoke the language better, uh, knew the geography, the climate, and so on. Um, I feel like I did accomplish a lot in the Peace Corps, and I'm very grateful for the experience. I, I think a lot of good did come from it. But as far as actually uh, working in partnership with farmers, uh, it was clear to me that local people would do that better. And the other, I think, key lesson that I took from Peace Corps was that for farmers to change the way they'd been farming for generations, there had to be regular long-term technical assistance over several years, that it couldn't be one workshop um, or you know, even a year uh, of technical assistance, that it had to be multi-year for the farmers to get comfortable with the new techniques, address any problems that came up and get to the point where they'd feel um, good going forward using those techniques. So um, I came out of Peace Corps kind of with, with those things in mind. Uh, looked for an organization that was focused on providing this type of technical assistance and was shocked to find that there wasn't any um, organization that was doing that. And so that's what eventually led me to start Sustainable Harvest International after getting a little more nonprofit experience before diving in to start my own. <laughs> okay. And when you started Sustainable Harvest International, what was your goal kind of from the outset? Was it just to increase um, production on the amount of land that they were farming? And then can you talk a little bit about why they were getting decreased yields year over year from the same plot of land? Mm -hmm, sure. Um, so the, the farmers were getting decreased yields because they were burning the forest and using the ash as a natural fertilizer to help grow the crops, but that would only help for maybe a year. And then the ash would wash away and the topsoil would wash away and they'd have to move to the next piece of land, cut that, burn that. And I think a long time ago when it was a um, you know, smaller indigenous population that they could leave a cleared area in the middle of the forest to recover for 50 or 100 years and that that was uh, sustainable and productive and they could complement it with hunting and gathering in the forest. But in the situation that I found uh, that these farmers and communities in the, the best flatland was taken up by very large farms and these poorer farmers were pushed up into the foothills farming on steep slopes and uh, and not having very much land per family. And so having to go back after just a few years and what little had grown back, having to cut it again, burn it again, and the land never had time to recuperate. There's not a lot of topsoil um, to begin with in these areas of the tropics. And so it doesn't take long or too many repetitions of this cycle now for, for the topsoil to really all be gone. Um, sometimes the uh, farming can be dragged out a little bit longer with chemical fertilizers, but they also do damage to the soil um, and to the, to the soil ecosystem. And so eventually uh, that doesn't work either and, and actually causes more harm. Um, so let's see, the, the other part of, I, sorry, I forgot the first part of your question. I <laughs> got going on the second um, part. Um, well, honestly, I don't remember either. I um, because I feel like you answered at least the crux of what I was 
of what I was asking on why they're not able to um, maintain the same productivity year after year. And so you answered that with the washing. Oh, and I remember you were asking about um, the, my goal when I started the organization. And um, I came into this work um, a little bit backwards, not knowing or caring too much about farming, but really in love with tropical forests. Uh, I'd spent some time in tropical rainforests in college and knew that they were being lost at the rate of about one acre every second and really wanted to be part of the, the solution to saving what's what was left of, of the tropical forests. And I, I saw this opportunity in this niche when I was in the Peace Corps of helping farmers to farm in a way where they wouldn't feel the need to, to burn more forest. Um, when I was in the Peace Corps, I also saw things like national parks with a the sign saying that this national park and to take care of it and right behind it was a hillside that had been the forest had all been cut it had been burned and there was corn growing on it and it was you know not that the farmers were bad people it was that they didn't see any other way to feed their children and you know now that I have a child of my own I know I do the same thing if I didn't see another way to feed my child uh, so it was evident that one of the key pieces to preserving the forest was to offer farmers an alternative where they didn't feel that they needed um, to burn more of the forest and could grow in abundance on the land that had already been cleared. And so that was my goal, starting Sustainable Harvest, to offer them adequate technical assistance to make that transition to sustainable practices where they can grow on the same land year after year after year without needing to um, clear more forest. Initially, uh, we, we did not use entirely organic practices. Uh, I didn't know enough and wasn't confident enough to say that we were going to do that. I didn't want my own ignorance to risk the farmer's well-being for not producing enough and, and not doing well in the program. Um, some of the local staff I hired felt like, like we needed to use chemical fertilizers um, and uh, these external inputs to get good productivity. And I went along with that for a few years, but then the more I saw and the more I learned from others, I came to the conclusion and, and my colleagues um, came to the conclusion with me or helped me come to the conclusion that the farmers could really get better results using 100% organic practices uh, with, without agrochemicals. And so eventually we made that decision that uh, you know each farmer will, makes their own choices for their farms, but as far as the type of practices that we would promote um, and we would support, it would only be um, organic, uh, what we now call regenerative practices, um, ecologically based practices. Can you speak to what some of the, or elaborate on what some of those are? Oh, sure. Uh, so some of the practices that we teach are agroforestry practices. So integrating trees in with other crops, a typical uh, type of agroforestry that we promote is something called multi-story cropping or forest farming. And so that's where you might have a, a top, really tall story of trees like in the forest, things like mahogany, rosewood, uh, these timber trees. Below that, you might have some shorter trees. They might be fruit trees, spice trees, nut trees trees that fix nitrogen um, and improve the soil by doing that. Uh, it could be trees planted for the wildlife. 
And then below that, there's usually a shrub layer. In the highlands, it's usually coffee. In the lowlands, it's usually cacao for chocolate. Uh, on the ground, you can have other crops that do well in this forest type environment, things like ginger, uh, black pepper. You could have vanilla vines growing up the trees. You can grow orchids on the trees. And you create an ecosystem that benefits the, the natural environment, but also benefits the farmer. Uh, so that's one type of agroforestry system that we promote. Uh, another one is alley cropping, where you have rows of those nitrogen fixing trees in, and then a few rows of corn or, or other crop and then another row of trees. And the trees are ones you can prune back, put the leaves down as the mulch to build up the fertility of the soil, improve the texture of the soil in that way improve the production of the other crops. Uh, if you're planted across the hillside, it helps stop erosion of the soil. And so that, that's another uh, type of agroforestry that we promote. If you prune back the branches, they can be used for firewood. So again, there's multiple benefits. We also teach other ways of preventing erosion. Erosion control barriers could be other crops like pineapple. They could be uh, what we call dead barriers made from rocks, from tree trunks, uh, other materials. Building up the soil can be done with cover crops, with different types of um, compost, with mulch. We also teach integrated pest management, so natural ways of managing the pests, or, or sometimes with organic uh, sprays that we teach the farmers how to make from plants that, that they're growing or that are growing on their land. Um, well, maybe that's enough for now. <laughs> Those are some of the techniques that we teach. <laughs> so a couple more questions just around the soil. Well, I'd like to dive into the soil health and then also into the natural pesticides just a little bit more. So with the soil health and for replenishing micronutrients year over year and not even necessarily micronutrients, but some nutrients like magnesium, are, are there any practices that is that part of the mulching or does that come in with some of these organic fertilizers? Mulching is one of the ways. Our, our primary focus is really on building up the soil organic material and in that way creating a healthy soil ecosystem. And we do that through a variety of different practices. Uh, the, the types of compost that we make, such as Bokashi, they probably provide a greater variety of nutrients for the soil than say a, a single crop mulch might, but they all work together to uh, create a health, healthier soil. Uh, we also use efficient microorganisms and they contribute to, to the health of the soil as well, which then in turn, of course, contributes to the health of the plants. Okay. And then to your, to your comment about the pesticides, with that, have you seen a shift in the, um, in the population of like bats and birds within any of these communities that you've worked with over the years since, since you started SHI to today? That's something that I really wish we, we had been able to, to track and um, we don't have any hard data on that. I definitely anecdotally have heard it from a lot of the farmers. Um, I, 
I'll have to share a, a video with you that I took when I visited uh, Maria Hernandez, one of the graduates from our program. And she, she's a representative of a number of the farmers I've talked to talking about how so many birds have come back, how there's more butterflies. And in her case, she even talked about monkeys coming back. And this is an area where I thought the monkeys were all long gone. And so to hear her talk about monkeys coming through her farm at night uh, was really exciting to me. Uh, and then even more importantly, how she talked about the fact that she was actually planting trees not just for her own family's well-being, but also for the animals, because she wanted there to be an abundance for her family and and for the other animals. And so that change of consciousness of people going, I think, from really struggling just to sustain themselves to get, getting beyond that, going, sustaining themselves, helping sustain their neighbors, and then expanding their thoughts of who their neighbors are to uh, include the other species. So uh, I really love that. Yeah, that is wonderful. One of the wonderful side effects of your organization of what your organization is doing with so with this kind of agroforestry or with these kinds of practices, are the farmers growing? So are they focused on? It almost sounds like they could be focused on several different crops. I mean, from rosewood all the way down. Is that really what they're focused on? When the farmers join our program, most of them, I would say, are growing three or four crops. There's okay. uh, almost always corn, usually beans, maybe cassava, maybe rice, uh, usually not much else. By the time they graduate from our program, four or five years later, they're growing 20, 30, 40 different crops, in, wow. including those tree crops, fruits, vegetables, herbs, medicinal herbs, uh, trees that they're uh, growing for making the natural pesticides, um, everything under the sun, mostly for their own consumption. And, and then in some cases to sell, to improve the cash income from the farms. Okay. Can you talk, can you elaborate just a little bit on the program itself and how far you carry the farmer, whether it's just focused whether the program is just focused on their growing practices or if it extends beyond that and really pulls in the entire network um, so that they're able, so that they have a flow for being able to sell um, their crops and, you know, kind of extend the pipeline. And here I'm thinking about all of the different fair, fair trade, fair for life organizations and how you kind of feed into that. Mm -hmm. um... Our program is divided into five phases that starts out just with planning with each family, what they want to accomplish with us during the years that they'll be in the program and actually drawing a picture of their land, what it looks like when they're starting, what they want it to look like at the end. And that helps with the process of thinking about what they want to accomplish. If it's uh, better food, more diversity of food, if it's more income. In most cases, improving their income is definitely part of what they're looking for, if, if not the primary goal. We start out with more of a focus on growing food for the, the family usually, so that whatever happens with markets and, and other factors, at a minimum, they'll be able to feed themselves well because uh, markets come and go, but the knowledge to feed yourself is something that can stick for generations. And so we wanna make sure that's in place and also the environmental piece and making sure that it's being done in a way that is 
restoring and then maintaining a healthy environment for the, the family and for our, our planet as a whole. But then as we get further along in the program, the focus shifts more towards growing crops for cash income. And so we do help farmers to think about what crops will have a good market, what crops can they make the most money from. We help them think about how to market, where to market, uh, in some places, helping them connect with those markets. Um, to be completely honest, I feel like that's an area where we could be doing more, we could be doing better. Um, it's, um, I feel like that's the weakest, uh, weakest results um, that we've gotten from our, our, our program. And it's an area going forward as we're thinking about scaling up to a, a much larger uh, impact. I hope that part of what we'll be able to do is roll into that uh, a, a stronger support for it, for the marketing of, of the crops. Yes, it definitely seems like with some of those tree crops and I mean, even with some of the larger shrubs that it could be a huge potential, of course, for skincare, um, essential oils and botanical oils. And <laughs> yes, <laughs> not my area of expertise, but I, I would I would think that, <laughs> uh, yes, the, the coconut oil, the cocoa oil, yeah. the, the aloe, the uh, different herbs and yeah, I would, yeah. I would think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so can you, which countries is she currently working in and then how has that expanded since you started? So, uh, and I, I love that you use the Spanish pronunciation of our acronym of SHI and call us she, that's <laughs> uh, something that I, I always appreciate. Um, and we currently are working in Honduras, Panama and Belize. We've been working in those three countries for over 20 years. We also worked in the South Atlantic region of Nicaragua for um, a number of years. We've finished the work there and are, are now thinking about more strategically where it would make sense to go next if we were to start a program in uh, another country. And we're thinking about it in broader terms now. For most of SHI's 25 years, we sort of went along, tried to raise a little more money so we could hire one more local field trainer to uh, be working with one more cohort of 30 or 40 farmers at a time. And and went on like that. Now we're seeing climate change and biodiversity loss as a real existential threat to humanity that has to be addressed as quickly as possible, uh, not to mention hunger going up again, um, poverty and migration issues causing so much suffering. And so we're looking at how can we as a small organization leverage our 25 years of experience to have a much broader impact globally. And we set a big audacious goal to impact a million farms by 2030. And uh, it will be partly by expanding the number of farmers working directly with us, partly through some innovations, um, including maybe some business components. And then most important, importantly, it will be with replicating partnerships. So partnering with government agencies or businesses or other organizations that will allow us to reach a much larger number of farmers 
by, by working collaboratively in, in partnership with, with other organizations. And so if we're gonna reach our goal of a million farms by 2030, it's going to be through those partnerships and where we find partnerships that will work for us is going to dictate to a great extent where we go uh, beyond the three countries where we're currently working. Um, we're looking at opportunities to expand within those countries and to find replicating partnerships in those countries first. We've um, heard from government officials that there does seem to be interest in partnering with us. Um, it's very early to, to say how it will go, but we're hopeful. Um, and then we would expand out from there, looking at where else strategically it would make sense for us to uh, work in Latin America and the Caribbean, and then beyond that, maybe start even looking beyond to other regions like Africa and Asia. Okay, wow. Um, so another question on this, but prior to the pandemic, um, she was offering opportunities for people to volunteer to kind of be on site and working on some of these farms, what did that look like? And then are there plans to, or has it already started back up since the pan, since restrictions have lifted, I guess I should put it that way. Um, things are still a little uncertain um, in some of the countries where we work, they're seeing another surge. And so things still feel a bit uncertain. Prior to the pandemic, we did offer volunteer trips every year for people to go and spend some time in the communities. Um, I think we, we had as many as seven trips a year at, at one point. It's sort of the peak wow. of um, the volunteer trips. It's, it's had ups and, and downs. Uh, but uh, I have felt like it's important since the very first year to, at, the, at a minimum, offer donors the opportunity to go and see firsthand uh, the transformations that they're making possible. And so for accountability, I feel like that's really important. But uh, we had uh, other staff that really grew it beyond that and offered as an opportunity for young people to just expand their understanding of the world and how most people live and how we're all connected. And uh, what uh, many people lack in other countries that we take for granted here or things that they have um, in, in other communities and other countries that maybe we've lost uh, in our culture. And so we found a lot of value in that and it offers the volunteers a pretty unique opportunity, I think, to be welcomed into a remote rural community in Central America, almost as if they're part of the family because sustainable harvest, is becomes part of the family when our local trainers are visiting every week or two. Um, and the, the farmers often do refer to our, our local staff as, as part of their family. And so then uh, by extension, the volunteers uh, get that same opportunity that would be very hard to get otherwise. Um, Honestly, uh, American volunteers are not the most effective uh, farm workers to, as far as getting the work done, um, but there are always opportunities where extra hands are helpful. And most importantly, it, it's an opportunity for the farmers uh, to show off the incredible work that they're doing and the transformations that, that they're making on, on their land. And it, and it facilitates just more interaction uh, between the volunteers and the farmers, which is enriching on, on both sides, um, I think. And uh, so that's the main reason that we have the volunteer trips um, for, for the enrichment of, of the people involved, both the farmers and the, the volunteers. Okay. And I do, um, I, and I do hope we will start 
uh, the trips up again soon. As I said, there's still some uncertainty. Um, our board of directors usually does a trip every year um, so that the board can also stay grounded in, in the real work happening on the ground on the farms. Last year, uh, it was decided that it wouldn't be safe to do that. We had a board meeting um, just recently, and that was a topic of discussion as to whether um, the board members or some board members will go um, in February when we usually go or, or another time and, and how we'll decide and, and, and where we'll go. We usually try to go to one country each year so that they all get a chance to spend time with the board. And it, it's, um, it's, it's a topic being given a lot of thought right now. Okay. Another question going going back to the productivity of the farms, how um, so I'm just wondering how much the productivity grows kind of compared to initially when the farmer first joins compared to at the end, like do they often comment on that. Uh, yes, they, they definitely comment on seeing the, the productivity increase many, many fold. Okay. Um, uh, the farmers talk about. Have their, having their income be as much as eight times what it was oh, wow. okay. um, before they, they start in, in the program. And then they talk about how they have more money because they're not having to buy food for the most part anymore, that 90% of what they eat or more, they're growing for themselves. They're not having to spend half of what they make from their farm on buying chemical inputs because they're making all their own uh fertility with what they have on the land now. So that definitely is, is a, one of the key reasons I think that, that farmers want to get involved with the program. It's why we've gone back to do a survey many years after families have graduated from the program and found that 91% are continuing to use the practices they learned during the program. And um, I don't think that's very common with international development work because I don't think usually that adequate time is put in for people to become successful and confident enough to continue on their own. Um, and what's been particularly exciting to me recently is I've found some Instagram accounts of these great young farmers in countries where we work. Um, and I've reached out to see if they'd like to get in touch with our, our local staff and they've written back and said, oh, my parents graduated from your program. That's why I'm studying agronomy. That's why I'm farming. That's why I have a tree nursery. Um, so the, wow, that's we're having the multi-generational impact that I always hoped we would and, and thought that we could have if we put in enough time working <clears throat> with each family. Okay. Another question around this. So we've talked we've spent the time talking about the plants is this a fully is this a full ecosystem is there also poultry involved and that kind of thing for replenishing the soil as well yes um most of the families have yard chickens when they join the program they often uh, have the difficulty of of predators eating some yeah. of the chickens or eating the eggs and so then of course that's less protein for for the families so we help with some projects like chicken coops so that the chickens have a safe place to roost at night when they'd be most likely to get eaten by predators it also means that more of the manure collects in one place um, under 
beneath uh, the, the coop where they're roosting. And that can be used as part of the production of the natural fertilizers. We help some of the families with fish ponds. Uh, again, it's, it's another source of protein. We do encourage a, 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 a lot of plant-based eating, but um, when you don't have refrigeration and there are many reasons why the plants that you're storing might not make it uh, for a family's well-being, it's really important to have other options such as eggs from the chickens or fish from the fish pond so that um, they can be ensured of some protein in their, in their diet year round. Um, and it is part of that ecosystem. The, the fish manure also goes with the water into the rice paddies and helps to fertilize uh, the, the rice paddies. And so it, it is all part of, of a healthy ecosystem. Um, we usually discourage uh, cattle which we don't feel are suitable to the ecosystems where, uh, where we're working that would naturally be uh, forest uh, in general, but smaller animals like chickens, fish, iguanas, um, sometimes pigs, um, goats. Th those are the primary animals that uh, families in our program work with. Okay. One more question about the... Uh... So just thinking in terms of the longevity of the food and maybe them needing to grind their own flour or this kind of thing for many of the crops, is that something that she is also involved in and how to, how to make the food suitable for long-term storage? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, we do a number of sort of homestead projects as well okay. as the ongoing uh, work with growing the crops. And one of the more common ones is teaching the families how to build silos. Okay. Just simple silos with sheets of metal and, yeah. um, and ways like that, as, as well as others for storing some of the crops that they're growing. Uh, we help them to make simple solar dryers uh, as a way of preserving the crops uh, for, for storage as well. And some of the other homestead projects in include, um, this is getting away from the food storage, but just to mention them, things like composting latrines um, for better sanitation and as a way of fertilizing some of the tree crops. And wood conserving stoves is one of the most popular of those projects since the families often are cooking over an open fire, which uses a tremendous amount of firewood and makes the house very hot. And so we teach them how to build a simple wood conserving stove that's enclosed, keeps the fire enclosed, keeps the heat in. It uses about one third the firewood of the open fire. Um, it's much cooler to, to cook over. Oh, and it eliminates the smoke that uh, the person cooking, usually the woman would otherwise be breathing all the time. Uh, millions of women around the world die every year because of complications from smoke inhalation from cooking over open fires. And so these help uh, with the environmental aspect and also with the health aspect. Okay. Wow. Thank you for talking a little bit more in detail about that. Another question um, regarding, so in the areas that you work prior to you, prior to she moving in, was sugarcane or is, well, it could still be a question today, is sugarcane a common um, crop that's grown on this land? Um, Sugarcane is certainly grown in all of the countries 
where we work. Um, some of the families in our program will have small patches of sugar cane with it. They'll usually squeeze the juice out of it with a trapiche, a, a, a handmade device that is turned sometimes by hand, sometimes by a horse to squeeze the juice out of the sugar cane to then be boiled down to then make the panela cakes of, of brown sugar. And we certainly work with the farmers on keeping that as part of their farm if, if that's what, what they want to do. I know where we've begun working in Belize in recent years, uh, we used to work in the Southern part of the country and then a few years ago moved to working in the Northern part of the country. Uh, where sugarcane is a big industry, but it's uh, having a very hard time. And so the National Sugarcane Growers Association has actually approached us to ask about partnering with them to work with the farmers in their association to help the farmers diversify and shift to an agroecology approach to farming that will restore the land and offer them better prospects uh, for the future than they're seeing in growing sugarcane alone as, as a monoculture. Okay. Yeah, so the reason for asking specifically about the sugarcane was just because um, that's one of the crops that is ripened with glyphosate. And so that's kind of where I know that would be against cheese practices since you guys are promoting organic but is this we do not like glyphosate <laughs> um so, so sorry monsanto you... or whatever you're calling yourself now <laughs> so can you maybe speak to that about how you've reduced the use of glyphosate on these farms that um or in well in these countries that you've moved in and started um working with well we teach the farmers uh, alternatives that cost less that don't bring the health risks and that get better results. And so in, in the case of weed control, that can be what, instead of slash and burn, slash and mulch. So uh, clearing by hand, but then leaving what's cleared on the ground, which then prevents uh, the weeds growing, growing up uh, through, through the mulch or shifting to other growing uh, systems that naturally can control the the weeds that would be growing otherwise. Okay, and for that, is it <laughs> how hard is it to find seed? Um, and here I'm thinking about corn. How much of the corn is already genetically modified? Like, how hard is it to find seed um, for these farmers initially? And and can we talk just a little bit about the seed saving um, training that go that is part of this? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, we have not uh, had much trouble that I'm aware of. Um, okay. uh, of course, our, our local staff are the ones that could answer all of these questions <laughs> better uh, than I can, but um, doing my best, I have not heard about uh, real problems with finding seed. Um, okay. And most of the seed, of course, is open pollinated so that it, it can be saved. And we do talk with the farmers about the importance of saving seeds, selecting seed, uh, and, and the ways uh, of doing that. In some cases, they might be using hybrid seeds, not, not genetically modified, but hybrids for one reason or another. And then in, in that case, we talk about uh, the fact that hybrid seeds usually can't be saved. And in that case, it's important to set aside some money um, and to have a plan for being able to buy more, more of those seeds in, in the future. Okay. 
And how can people find out more about she and donate to she? Uh, well, probably the best bet is to go to our website, um, which is sustainableharvest.org. Or if you want to specifically learn about our scaling up plan, the Million Farm Transformation, you can go to millionfarmtransformation.org. And uh, that's the best way to learn more about us. And of course, we're also on all the social media if, if the video is going to be up <laughs> it's on, on my screen there, I think. Yeah, yeah. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Flo. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity and uh, thank you so much for your support of our work. I'm happy to be able to support your work. <laughs> You're doing great work. Have you ever searched for essential oil only scented candles? If you have, then you and I definitely have at least one thing in common. This has been something I've searched for at least for a couple of years, maybe even longer, and I've resorted to making some myself. However, candle making is a bit of a pain in the butt, and um, I was thrilled when I discovered Aspen Clean Candle because this company, actually, which is based in Colorado, makes the candles for you. So it's none of the mess, none of the fuss, and you get to enjoy a candle that is fragranced only with essential oils because one of their lines is scented purely with safe burning essential oils. Next week on the show, I'm thrilled to bring the conversation with founder Jill Kozdrowski here to the show to share more about Aspen Clean Candle. Stay tuned for that episode.